Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Boy, wasn't that a fantastic session? Uh, living on empty, and how many, how many of us have done that? It's kind of a guy thing, you know. We just we 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 almost we almost uh, celebrate being a workaholic. Do they use that term in Australia? Yeah, we almost celebrate that. And uh, you ever consider this? Uh, the the Lord has wired us to sleep every night. Now, God didn't have to make man that way, but he, he wired us to sleep for one-fourth to one-third of our lives, almost to say, I've got this covered, you know? Every day we experience the gospel physically in a death, a burial, and a, re- a resurrection. Every day we experience that, and it ought to remind us that we need Christ. And that was, that was a wonderful uh, session. Just really enjoyed the pr- practicality of it. Thank you for that, Jason. I uh, really, really appreciate that. Uh, open your Bible to uh, the book of First Thessalonians. Anyone know what time we get out? What time do we quit? No, no, don't, no, don't say that. You never tell a preacher that. That's the worst thing you can tell a preacher. Because the one guy in church that says, no, just preach, everyone else is saying, no, no, please don't. Give him a time. So what, what time? Seriously, though, what time, what time are we supposed to get out? About, about noon? About, okay, 12. No, we're not going to go that long. Okay, I promise you I'll do better than that. First uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter number five uh, in your Bible. Uh, I wanted to bring a session. I, I know we have some pastors in here, and I uh, so, am so grateful for uh, fellow ministry servants. Uh, really, really uh, love the camaraderie uh, that we can have together. Also, just very, very grateful for uh, all of you men. And I, I got to thinking this morning as I was thinking about this session. You know, I, I know these guys from, uh, from Faith Sydney, uh, some of my, my dear friends uh, here, and it just humbles me that men would take vacation days, holiday time, and, and, and pay money and travel to be in a conference like this. You know, sometimes preachers, we, we, we take that for granted uh, because we, this is part of our lives. But these men that took this time to come. And so if you're a man that has come from your local church, you're supporting your pastor, uh, thank you for that. Uh, That is just such a blessing. And understand that in the Bible, there really is no dichotomy between secular and spiritual. We're all in full-time ministry. We're all full-time servants of God. We all are. And God strategically plants us in our circles circles of influence. And so I, I really, really appreciate you being here. I want to read a couple of verses for you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse number 12. This is kind of the concluding section of the book where the Bible says, We beseech you, brethren, and, and watch, watch the verbs here. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, to know them. And we, we, uh, we would use the word today to know here in the sense of acknowledge, Acknowledge. That's what that means, to acknowledge them. Not, not, not to know those that labor among us in some kind of a trivial way. Like I know my pastor's favorite um, sports team. I know his favorite color. I know his favorite kind of coffee. Um, that, that's not what this is talking about. This is not knowing facts about a person. This is acknowledging their position, acknowledging uh, the, how God is using them. That's, that's the point. So to, to know them which labor among you and are over you and the Lord. See that? So they, they labor among you. They're over you and the Lord. And they admonish you. So those are three important jobs of a ministry servant. Uh, that they, they labor. They, they oversee. They're over you. And they warn. They admonish. Look at verse number 13. So in verse 12, know them. Verse 13, esteem them. Do you see that in verse 13? Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, 
but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. So I want to talk about how to be a blessing to your pastor, how to, uh, how to fulfill your calling as a godly man in your local church, and why the Apostle Paul would end such an important book with these admonitions. So I, I think it'll help us. Lord, would you help uh, each man here today? We're grateful for every family represented. And Lord, we're grateful for faithful wives and children. We pray that you would bless these sessions with the ladies and with the teenagers. We're grateful uh, that we have the, the freedom still to be able to do things like this. Lord, I pray especially now that you would bless this session. I pray that this would be an equipping time. I pray that it would be a, a soul-searching time when each one of us would humbly just look at himself through the aid of your Holy Spirit to look in the mirror of your word to see things about ourselves perhaps that we would not and could not otherwise see. Now, Lord, please give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear in these moments and then I pray that you would give us courage, courage to make the adjustments that are necessary, to chart a new course in some cases, uh, to rise to a level of spiritual leadership and responsibility to which you call all of us. Uh, please, Lord, bless this time together, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So you know the Apostle Paul was uh, the consummate church planter. I think I'm on. Yes, uh, the consummate church planter. I mean, the Apostle Paul on a second missionary journey alone, just think about the ground that he covered, uh, confirming some churches at the beginning and then picking up uh, Timothy, remember, in Lystra. So now it's Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they're just forging their way westward, forging their way, wanting to go here. The, the Lord says no. Wanting to go there. The Lord said no, not yet. And then just keep on, and they finally got to the end of the road. Remember, Troas didn't know what to do. And sometimes it takes the end of the road for us to get clarity from God. And they got to the end of the road, and there Luke joined them. And I love how Luke writes it in Acts chapter 16. Because uh, Paul received that Macedonian call. Remember, Acts 16, come over and help us. And uh, Luke says, in, in response to that call, and we assuredly gathered that the Lord had called us. Isn't that something? Sometimes we, we think of the, the Apostle Paul as a great man of faith, and certainly he was. But I think those that were the cohorts of the Apostle Paul were men of great faith as well. Amen. It's one thing to see a vision. It's another, it's another thing to trust the man that saw the vision. Yeah. They both saw it as being of the Lord. And so now you've got Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, I mean, you talk about these guys are really different. And, and God leads them to Philippi. And, of course, we know the, the ministry at Philippi. We know about Lydia. We know about the Philippian jailer. We know about the imprisonment of Paul and Silas, the praying at midnight. We know all of that. And then we know that Paul and Silas made their way down the road through the smaller cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia. The Romans would put cities about every... 10 to 15 miles apart because that would be a day's journey. And so along the Egonation Way, the highway of Rome, to the main city in Macedonia, which was Thessalonica. They call it Thessaloniki today, but Thessalonica. And there the Apostle Paul, as was his stated philosophy, started a church. The Apostle Paul wanted to go to places, Romans 15, this was his stated philosophy, where no church had been planted. I want to go to pe people that have never heard the gospel, uh, I'm going to go to the Jew first. That was an, another one of his stated philosophical principles. Uh, I want to build a church in a hub city so that from that city uh, they can spoke out and the gospel can, can have a great uh, geographical um, success, right? So, that, so Paul did that. He went to Thessalonica uh, with Silas uh, and Timothy and, and Luke stayed back in Philippi, studied the pronouns. And so Luke stays back in Philippi. So now in Thessalonica... Paul and Silas and Timothy, they, they start this church. And what a great church it was. Acts chapter 17. These are they, that the people of the town said, these are they which have turned the world, what? Upside, Upside down. down. Isn't that something? So here, here, here is the assessment 
of the Thessalonian people about their ministry. Man, they are really stirring things up. I mean, they are turning things on their face. This is an amazing. And so people were, were coming to Christ. Some, some of the chief women of the city were coming to Christ. God is strategically saving. Uh, some of the Jews are coming to Christ. And that is really making the unbelieving Jews mad. They are so jealous. And so what ends up happening is the unbelieving Jews, moved with envy, essentially kick out uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas. They kicked out of town. I mean, they, they kicked out. Now, think about it. They didn't plan that. So many things that happen to us in ministry are things that we don't plan, right? It just happened. And circumstances beyond your control are always God's will for you. Circumstances beyond your control are always God's will for you. And so you must respond to them. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy, they, they were kicked out of town. They went down to Berea. They never would have gone to Berea. Berea was a small place, still is. Uh, they would have moved down to a larger population region. But, you know, God uses circumstances to do, help us to do the things that we perhaps would not have done otherwise. And so they go. Now, now, let me ask you a question. What happened to that church? I mean, if you take the Bible at surface value in Acts 17, they were there a very short period of time. The Bible says three Sabbath days. So add a week on either end, you've got five weeks. Now, it could be that they were there several months, but I mean, to look at the most literal rendering of the history of Acts 17, you have to say they were there a very short time. So who's pastoring the church? Like, who's pastoring that church? Paul's not there. Timothy's not there. Silas is not there. Who, who's leading that fledgling congregation? People from among their midst. Now, it's not like you and, you and I would lead discipleship. You, you and I would lead a church and people get saved and, you know, after a couple of weeks we want to get them in discipleship. And we really use the word discipleship as a misnomer today. Because to, to us, discipleship is, well, we need to sit down for an hour a week and go through a fill-in-the-blank curriculum. And I'm not against that, by the way. But that's a very small part of discipleship. You know, discipleship is day-by-day, life-on-life. That's discipleship. And what the Apostle Paul did was day-by-day, life-on-life. And how do we know that? Because he told us that. He told us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 why that church was so successful. And what the Apostle Paul said was, the reason why this church was so successful is because God used us to help you. That's how God does it, by the way. God always uses people to minister to people, both in the propagation of the gospel and in the discipleship process. He uses people to help people. It's not primarily about a program. It's not primarily about a service order. It's not primarily about a methodology. It's about people investing in people. And that's what happened. That Paul explained it very carefully in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's a, a tremendous passage. So think about it. Here's Paul in Berea having a separate ministry now. These are more noble than they of Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures, right? You that whole thing. And then what happens? The unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica hear that Paul is in Berea and they send their, their thugs, okay, the Lebanese mafia, uh, down, down to uh, Berea. And they kicked them out of there too. See what, see what the way you guys are before you get saved? Um, uh, and, and, go, and kick them out. Kick them out. And so what does Paul do? Paul gets out of Berea, heads down the coastline to Athens. And you know the story there in the end of Acts 17. I mean, no church started. The Apostle Paul's just there philosophizing with the philosophers and trying to make headway. And it's not a highly fruitful ministry, but some, how be it some uh, trust the Lord, get saved. Dionysius and some others there in Acts 17. But all the while, listen, all the while, the Apostle Paul is, is concerned about, he's thinking about those people in Thessalonica. There's no email. There's no real-time information. He doesn't know how they're doing. I mean, what would you think about this fledgling church? And while there are some that have been discipled day by day by day by day in those early weeks, and they've ramped up quickly in their Christianity, and they're doing their best to lead that church, the Apostle Paul doesn't have any real confidence that this church is going on for God, and so he sends Timothy back up. Timothy, I want you to go back up. You can read all about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He said, Timothy, back up. Timothy, please find out what is the status report on these people. And so it's like, how are they doing? 
Well, in the meantime, the Apostle Paul finishes his stint in Athens and makes his, makes his way over to Corinth. And of course, Corinth, what a ministry in Corinth. Is it not interesting that here, here the Apostle Paul shows up. He's not physically fit. His body's racked with pain. He has all kinds of issues. He's all by himself. He's under-supported. It sounds like the worst possible missions endeavor, right? Shows up in town. The first thing he does is gets a job. First thing he does is gets a job. I got to get a job. I got to eat. So he finds these people that got kicked out of Rome because Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And they're probably wondering what's going on. They're from Pontus, which is northern Turkey. They made their way to Rome, established their business. They get kicked out of town. A husband and wife team. They come to Corinth. What are we doing here? Paul comes to Corinth, and I guess we're going to start a ministry here. And his, be his best converts are converts he doesn't reach through church planting. The best converts of his ministry are people that he reached and discipled through his bivocational job. Is that not interesting? Take heart, bivocational pastor. You're thinking, okay, I got to work this job so that I can be a pastor. No, no, no. You are being a pastor in your bivocational job. Because Priscilla and Aquila, they were the, they were the star converts in Paul's ministry. Matter of fact, Paul wrote a letter years later to the Romans from Corinth and said, hey, these are they that have laid down their neck for me. Every Gentile church ought to send them a thank you letter. Think about that. So there, there's Paul. He's thinking, what's going on? What's going on with Thessalonica? What's going on? Finally, finally, Timothy comes. Finally. Timothy comes down and says, Paul, listen, good news. Tell me. Tell me all about it. Tell me all about it. Oh, Paul, not only are they hanging in there, but they're not hanging by a thread. I mean, they are thriving. They have a working faith. They have a laboring love. They have a patient hope. I mean, they are... They are manifesting all of the characteristics of mature Christianity. And Paul's like, yeah, I know. I've been meeting people that are traveling along the Ignatian Way, and they've, they've been telling me about their gospel experience in Thessalonica. Matter of fact, he wrote them and said, from you sounded out the gospel so that in all Macedonia and in all other places, the gospel is being heard. I mean, you are having a dynamic ministry. So he takes out his pen. Good job, chapter one. Chapter two, good job, here's why. Chapter three, he kind of talks about his journey a little bit. Chapter four, he deals with things like uh, sexual purity. He deals with things like the, the coming of the Lord because they had some questions about the rapture. They, they, they weren't straight on their eschatology. He had to write about that every single chapter. Chapter five, he finishes up his talk about end time events and, and looking for the coming of the Lord. And, and then he gets to chapter five and verse number 12 and he says, okay, now let's deal with the elephant in the room. So what's the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room is, who's leading the church? Who's leading the church? The Apostle Paul said, so let me help you with how to deal with leadership in the local church. This is so important. So look, please, if you would, back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And let's just wade through this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 12. And... We beseech you, brethren, number one, know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So what, what's the first obligation that local churches have when it comes to their leadership? I would say the first obligation that the Apostle Paul gives us here is to acknowledge, to acknowledge them, to acknowledge them. So that means to recognize their God-given rightful authority. Acknowledge them. Acknowledge godly leaders. Acknowledge them. Uh, so acknowledge not only existing leaders, but acknowledge emerging leaders. Acknowledge existing leaders and acknowledge emerging leaders. So let me ask you a question. You know, in, in your church, are you acknowledging the existing leaders whom God has set over the assembly? Are you acknowledging them? Sometimes we kind of have this... this uh, well, he can't tell me what to do mentality. And by the way, any pastor worth his weight in salt doesn't want to tell people what to do right. in that sense. Right. But the point is, in every institution that God has ordained, God has ordained a leadership structure. 
And it's a little bit disingenuous for us as men to say, hey, I'm the man of this home, and then go to another one of God's institutions and say, but I'm not going to submit here. Why would I expect my wife to submit to me if I don't submit in my local church? God has only ordained the family and government and the local church. Those are the three God-ordained institutions. And so we have to understand the principle of submission. I think there's a great principle found in 1 Peter chapter 3. I think it's verse number 7. Where uh, a husbands dwell with them, the wives according to knowledge, consideration. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life. And watch, and watch the promise that your prayers what? Be not hindered. So the point is this. God says, why should I honor your requests when you don't honor her requests? Right? That's the point. The point is, every leader is under leadership. We're all under leadership, including the pastor. We all have to understand what submission is. Every one of us. So, in your local church, acknowledge existing leaders. Especially is that important during transitional times. You know, so, you know, Faith Baptist, you guys went through a transitional time several years ago. And those are prime times for the devil to fight. He fights during transitions. So it's a time for us to make sure we're walking with God, we're right with God, we're seeking God. Why? Because those are times of great danger. Uh, when, do, when, when do automobiles get in accidents? Typically at intersections. Right? Typically at intersections. That's where, that's where bad decisions are made. So be aware of intersections. So acknowledge existing leaders. But then I would say this number two, and this is very positive, Acknowledge emerging leaders. Acknowledge emerging leaders in the church. Recognize them. Learn to recognize those in whose life God is working. Those whom God is leading up. You know, I had several really good conversations today with, with, with several uh, young men uh, who are saying, you know, Pastor, I'm feeling like maybe the Lord is. You know what that does for me? It puts my antenna on high alert. Because the Bible says we are to commit to to whom? Faithful men. And I think sometimes if we're not careful in ministry, we spend uh, the lion's share of our ministry time and our, and our ministry uh, energy chasing people who don't really want it. Right? We just take, kind of take for granted the people that are always there. And yet Bible ministry is supposed to be the exact opposite. The exact opposite is we're supposed to proactively be spending time with those that are faithful, that do want it, that are hungry. Instead of putting out a million fires, you know, why don't you nurture the one fire that's real? So it's, it's, it's acknowledging those emerging leaders. And I think most of us know that the best leader in a local church is one that has grown up in that church. Amen. Now, now I, I'm all for... I'm all for, you know, uh, Pastor Hernan, you were called here to Good Shepherd. You came from someplace else. I'm at Faith Baptist Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I was called from somewhere else. I know that God sometimes does that. But I'm saying as a normal pattern, like my, my goal at Faith Baptist Church, matter of fact, I'll tell you this, I just told our church this past Sunday, I'm on a three-year plan. You know, to, to move into my next phase of ministry. I, I have to be a steward of what God's told me in my life. So I will have been there for 10 years. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but we already have a plan in place. Uh, we already have a team. We already have men in our church. We have, I, I believe we have the man in our church who's our next pastor. And I think that's healthy. I think that's healthy. And so recognize them. It's a scary thought to think that that junior high kid could be your pastor. But, but he could be. And in many cases, he should be. Now, not yet. <laughs> not yet, okay? But wow. So at our church in Pennsylvania, you know, we had a number of young men who were called to ministry over the years. And we invested in them. I viewed them as my Timothys. And several of them are still leading that church today. And I thank the Lord for that. So when it comes to your local church, men, because this is, a, this is an admonition to the men. This is not just, okay, pastors, you get to choose who the next pastor are. No, this ought to be recognized among the godly men of the church. 
So acknowledge, acknowledge your existing leaders. Acknowledge your emerging leaders in your church. It is absolutely imperative, okay? And, and so imperative is that, listen, I gave this lesson. There are men in this room that sit and sat in congregations. I've already given this lesson to you. You know, I wrestled with, should I even give this lesson today? But I really feel strongly that this, this section of scripture is so overlooked and so important for the structure and polity of local churches that I, I wanted to revisit it. You know, not with any agenda, just to say, we need to understand this. Acknowledge existing and emerging leaders in your church. Okay, now watch this. Number, number two, esteem them. Esteem them. Okay, the, the word itself, esteem. That means to, to value deeply, to esteem. What are some things that you esteem in your life? Well, you esteem your family. You esteem your, your wife, I hope. You, know, you esteem, you value. Well, the Bible says we need to learn to value the leaders that God has given us in our churches. Learn to value them. Because sometimes we don't see leaders as the gift from God that they are. Now, that sounds really self-serving because I'm a leader in a local church. But that, that's exactly the language that, that the Lord uses. And he, and he gave, and he gave. That's Christ. And he gave some apostles and prophets. We know that those offices are now defunct. Those were offices in the early church. Uh, uh, evangelists, right? I, I think of church planning missionaries. And then pastors and teachers, one office. God, who, who gave the office of pastor and teacher to the local church? Jesus did. So it's not only that Jesus gives us all gifts, he does, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, he does, okay? But the, the, the office of pastor itself is a gift. The office of pastor itself is a gift. And so he gives gifts, and we ought to be doing our job. So we need to value that God has created this infrastructure in the local church. And so what, why? Why should we value our leaders in local churches. Why? Men, why should we value the under-shepherd whom God has placed in our church? Why? Well, the Bible gives us three reasons. I, that's what I love about the Word of God. There's no wiggle room. The Lord tells us exactly why. And, and I think implicitly, He's telling us why not to value them. Because we value pastors for all the wrong reasons. Like, I, I'm talking about we, Americans. We're so su superficial in the way that we value pastors. In America, we tend to value pastors that are dynamic or a good leader, organizational, church builders. But the Bible says none of that. The Bible says none of that. Comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves, they're not wise. The Corinthians, were, they were making value judgments for all the wrong reasons. All the wrong reasons. So what are some proper and godly reasons uh, for us to value the leaders in our church and not compare them unfairly with other pastors and other churches. Well, what do we do? Well, the Bible tells us. Look, look at verse number 12 again. So we beseech you, brethren, know them which labor among you. So number one, we value them for their labor and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. That's the point, for their work's sake. To esteem them, watch this, esteem them, that's a strong word. And then the Bible says, very highly, that's an exponent, in love. So it's like, that's like exponent, exponent. That's like exclamation point, exclamation point. Like this is really, really important, says the Lord. This is, this is your value of this man in your life. Value them. And value them for their work's sake. Not for their personality. Not for their preaching style. Not for their personal friendship with you. Or their shared avocation with you. You know, value them for their work's sake. That's why it's important in selecting pastors. We, we look for people that work hard, right? Work at labor. The Bible says that's your job to assess that. That's your job. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who, what? Labor in the word and doctrine. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word hard work. And one of the things we do as local churches is assess people that work hard, that work hard, and then esteem people who work hard. And then don't live on empty. <laughs> That's important too. But uh, uh, so number one for their work. Number two, watch this, verse number, uh, verse number 12. They labor, and, and watch this, they labor among you. 
So their labor is demonstrable among you. That's a, that's a tough one for me. I travel weekly. You know, I travel weekly. So this is unusual for me to be gone from my church for a couple weeks. But like I'm, I, I'm at our church five days a week and I'm gone two days a week. But let me just tell you something. Uh, that's a weight on me. Because when I'm home, and we've talked about this, Jason, when I'm home, well, I want to make sure that my work is demonstrable. Labor among you. I want them to see me at the outreach program. I want them to see me, you know, before and after church. I want them to see me involved in ministry duty. I want to say, because I'm laboring among them. The shepherd ought to smell like the sheep. Right, so labor among you, not just in his ivory tower. Not just in his ivory tower, but there among the people, pressing the flesh, if you will. So labor among you. So we value them for their work, but then watch this. Uh, they labor among you. They're over you in the Lord. You say, oh, huh, that must be nice. Must be nice for the guy that's in charge. We don't even like to use this language anymore. And, and, and modern sensibilities and, and modern business language, we don't even use language like over. We don't even have a flow charts anymore. We have top-down leadership. We don't even talk about that anymore. That, that's, that's, that's passe. You know, we, we talk about oh, team, and we talk about, you know, we're partners. And I think those are good words, too. But the bottom line is we are under authority. People are over us and the Lord. Unless you think that that's like, well, it must be nice. No. The Bible teaches, be not many masters. Knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. No, with oversight comes greater responsibility. Every overseer is overseen. Every overseer is overseen by the Lord. We answer to the Lord Christ, the Bible says. We have that stewardship obligation. That's the whole term for bishop. He's the episkopos, right? Epi means around. Skopos means to see. He's looking over. He doesn't overlook, but he's looking over. He's overseeing. That's the point. Boy, if you have a, a pastor who's willing to, to oversee, that's, that's, a, that's a big part of pastoring. You know there are three words for pastor in the Bible. Pastor, bishop, and elder. And you know the one that's used the least, right? Pastor, it's only used once in Ephesians 4. Yeah, bishop and elder are used much more often. We talk about qualifications, it's bishop, 1 Timothy 3. It's elder, Titus chapter 1. The whole point is, your pastor does a whole lot more than scream one hour on Sundays. If he's doing his job, he's laboring. He's overseeing. And then the Bible says there's a third reason to esteem. See it? They labor among you. They're over you in the Lord. Then watch this, and they admonish you. So I'll say this. A good pastor says the hard things. A good pastor says the hard things. Now, who wants that job? Who wants the job? Okay, it's like Jeremiah. Okay, Jeremiah, uh, go, don't be afraid of their faces. Go preach. They're not going to listen. Matter of fact, they're going to hate you, but preach anyway. Sometimes pastors, we feel that way, you know? And so our job is to tell people the truth, and many times the truth is hard to hear, but faithful are the wounds of a but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Pastors, if we're not telling people what we know the Bible says to tell them, we are being deceitful. That's a deceitful pastorate. And so who wants to have a job where your job is to tell people bad news? But that's the job of a pastor. No, I want to tell people good news. And much of the Bible is good news. And the gospel is good news. But you can't get the good news until you get the bad news. Right? And so the point is, if you have a pastor like that, who works hard among you, takes his oversight, his accountability before God seriously, tells you things that sometimes you don't want to hear, but that you need to hear, thank God for that pastor. Esteem him very highly in love for the work's sake. Okay, so we know them. We esteem them. Now watch the third, the last one, the last one. What, what's something else we can do to be a part of pulling the rope with our pastor in our local church? Well, we need to acknowledge them, both existing and emerging leaders. We need to esteem them for these, for these biblical qualities. 
Then the Bible says in verse number um, 13, so esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now watch the third one here. And, so there's your coordinating conjunction. And be at peace among yourselves. What's one of the greatest ways by which men in a local church can benefit their pastor? Get along with each other. Like, learn how to deal with your differences. Learn how to handle biblically what, what, what you're at odds with. The pastor doesn't always have to be the referee. And if the pastor has to referee everything, then guess what's not happening? No outward focus. The church is not mobilized. Think about your human body. If all you ever have to do is care for your human body, then your human body can't go out and do the things it can't go to work. It's sick. Got to spend all my time just dealing with my sickness. That's what a lot of pastors do. They have to spend all their time just dealing with the health of their local church. The local church never realizes what that body is supposed to do because healthy bodies are supposed to help other bodies. That's what a healthy local church does. Healthy local churches are to help other, help other churches. This church is healthy, Good Shepherd. How do I know that? Because I go back there and see all the missionaries you're supporting. I see, uh, I see the, the big debt you take to do a conference like this, but you're happy to do it. See, when, when healthy churches are healthy, they can help other bodies. When you're not healthy, you just have to take care of your own body all the time. And the way by which you can help your pastor is dealing with the issues among yourselves. Let's think about going on vacation with your children, right? Like, I have four adult children. They're all married. You know what, you know what I love the most about having adult children? You can't tell them what to do anymore, right? I mean, you can. They just don't listen. But they're my best friends. Like, my four children are my best friends. Like, I talk to one of them every single day of my life, multiple times. I love my children. But I'm going to tell you this right now. When we have a big family get-together, the thing I enjoy the most, and I, I am the, I'm the loudest and most talkative person in my family. I'm sure that's a shock to you. <laughs> but when our family gets together, I, I think I'm the quietest one. You know what I love to do? I love to sit over in the corner and listen to them love each other. I would much rather they talk to each other than talk to me. I'd I'd much rather they love each other. We have a family group text. Do you do that sometimes in your family, family group text? I love to see the way they interact with each other. You know what your pastor loves? He loves to see the way you interact with each other. And if the whole ministry is just built on everyone's connection with you, then you have a very tenuous ministry. Jesus got to the end of his ministry and says, listen, I know you love me. I'm just not so sure you love each other. Right? I know you love me. Okay? But as I have loved you, as I have loved you, then love each other. Because when Jesus was gone, there was a scattering. There was a scattering. And, and, and that, that, that shouldn't be built on any one personality. They should have had a common love and commitment to each other, right? Because of their common love for Christ. So, wow. So how can we be at peace? That, that's our job. How can we be at peace? Not, not, not truce, right? A truce is the absence of hostilities, okay? Yeah, that guy's a real jerk, but I just won't tell him anymore, right? That's not peace, I can't get along with the guy, so I'll just sit on the opposite side of the auditorium. That's not peace. That's just an extended truce. Okay, there's, a, there's always that feeling of, you know, peace is the presence of fellowship. It's, it's the presence of. So what are the ways by which we can be at peace with each other? Well, isn't it great that the Bible gives us four very practical ways? The very next verse. The very next verse, the Bible gives us ver- four very practical ways by which every man who is godly in his local church can help pull the rope in a positive direction. So, so look, at, look at the four ways. So we'll, we'll finish with this. When I say things like finish or in conclusion, I really don't mean anything by that. I just say that because I know it's, it gets your attention, okay? And it gets your hopes up. 
uh, but I will quickly dash those hopes. Look at verse number uh, 14. So be at peace among yourselves, end of verse 13. Now look at verse 14. Now, we exhort you, brethren. We exhort you, brethren. Number one, warn them that are unruly. So I think it's important for us to define Bible words by Bible definitions. So to warn means to admonish. So it's not just your pastor's job to warn people. It's your job too, okay? And warn the unruly. You know what the, unru- know what the word unruly means here? It's the same word that's used for disorderly back in chapter four. It's the same word that's used in 2 Thessalonians because they didn't get the lesson. This church didn't get it. They were hard-headed. They didn't get the lesson. The point was this. There were people in that local church when the Apostle Paul preached on the coming of Christ that, that said, oh, Jesus is coming again, so I'm going to quit my job at Walmart or Kmart, whatever you have over here. And, and, and people actually had quit their jobs. Now, Jesus didn't come back. So their bills still came in. You know, their, their, their creditors still wanted payment. Their, their mortgage still had to be paid. And the groceries still cost money. And so uh, what, what was happening is the, the other church members were caring for the church members who styled themselves to be more spiritual because they had quit their jobs. We, we believe what Paul said. Jesus is coming again. And so the apostle Paul had to write them and say, listen, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Work with your own hands, he told them back in chapter four. Because in any community of love, there's always going to be people that mooch. Is that a word in Australia? Mooch? Yeah, okay. There's always going to be a moocher. In any community of love, in any place where people are predisposed to be givers, that's, that's, that's a church. That's a healthy church. When there's a predisposition for giving, then that's always going to attract people that are takers. If your gift is giving, my gift is taking, right? So, and that's what was happening. That's what was happening. The Apostle Paul had said, listen, that's not healthy for you. So, guys, we need to learn to have hard conversations with each other. It shouldn't always have to be pastor that says, hey, where were you? We had a work day. Or we had midweek service and you didn't come. It shouldn't always be pastor that has to follow up on people. Matter of fact, I'll say this. Peer-to-peer confrontation is much more effective. You want to read a good book uh, from a business standpoint? Read Patrick Lencioni's book called The Advantage. If you're a businessman, read Patrick Lencioni's book called The Advantage. And what he says in that book is the most most, um, healthy confrontation is peer-to-peer confrontation. So I love playing basketball. I loved following basketball for years. I don't follow it much anymore. Uh, But there was a really good basketball team in San Antonio, Texas. That's where I was born, San Antonio. And for years, a very, very strong team. Uh, Popovich was the coach. And the major kind of franchise player was a man, a big, big, tall guy by the name of Tim Duncan. Ever heard that name, Tim Duncan? And Tim Duncan is notoriously quiet, passive and quiet. Now, he plays real strong, but passive and quiet. And every now and then, when a game would be on the line, they'd call a timeout. Popovich would be calling a play. Duncan would just take over the huddle. Guys, we're lazy out there. Let's go. And coach said, whenever he would do that, I would just back off. It didn't make it. It was what my strategy was. Didn't make it. It was what my coaching mechanism was at that moment. I, I called it Timmy time. Because the guys, you know what our churches need? Timmy time. Guys, when men are willing to have hard conversations with men. Like, come on, bro. Come on, bro. Where were you? Come on. That doesn't always have to be the pastor. That's a healthy environment. Warn them that are unruly. Okay? Watch the second one here. The second one. Warn the unruly. Then the Bible says, uh, comfort the feeble-minded. And, and, you know, we, we kind of use that verse sometimes almost as a joke. Well, comfort the feeble-minded. You know, these people that just aren't as smart as everyone else. That's not what that means at all. You know that, right? You, don't, you, you know that the, the old English word comfort here is not the word comfort like I'm sitting by a bedside and, you know, 
applying cold compress to someone's forehead. That's not what this means here. Okay, Comfort here means to encourage. It means to encourage. And feeble-minded, watch this, literally means a person that has a weak soul. And I don't, the, the word soul in that sense means somebody who is predisposed, listen, someone who is predisposed to give up easily. Do you know that some guys just have more grit than other guys? It's just the way God made you. You don't believe that? Look at a footy game with seven-year-old boys. Sometimes the littlest kid is the one that is the toughest kid. Sometimes the big kid is the one that gets hit one time. It's like, oh, I quit. That doesn't mean that one person is better than the other. It just means that, that dispositionally we're all different. And understand in local churches, some people more readily quit than others. You know what they need? They need encouragement. They need for you to come alongside of them. They need for you to, to, to be that Barnabas in their life, to come where they are. Again, if that's the pastor's job only, then your church is always going to be relegated to a very small size. But boy, when this can become the esprit de corps of a church, even just six guys, even just ten guys, but I'll tell you, this exponentializes the influence of a local church. Warn the unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. Okay? Then watch this. Support the weak. Support the weak. Is that the next one? Yeah, support the weak. So the weak, so we think about weak as in um, physically weak. Now, should we support physically weak people, yes or no? No, get rid of them. No, no, yeah, we should, we should. Of course we should. Of course we should. Yeah, so have your handicap ramp and, you know, help the little old lady across the street and, uh, you know, certainly help people that, that are, you know, sick and off work. And we're going to help them. Yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. But that's not generally what the Apostle Paul meant when he talked about weak. In fact, the Apostle Paul, most often when he talked about weak, was not talking about people physically weak. He was talking about people that are spiritually weak. Okay, so we then, are, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmity of the what? Weak and not to please ourselves. So the whole argument in Romans 14, the whole argument at the beginning of Romans 15, it's all about uh, being weak-minded spiritually. It's the weaker brother. So when the Bible says support the weak, you know what that means? That means that you're supposed to, you're supposed to know this book. Men, you're supposed to know this book. You're supposed to know why you believe what you believe. Why? Because people come into local churches with all kinds of theological baggage. And they, and they, have, they don't know what they believe and they're worried about. And boy, it takes a good older Christian brother, sometimes younger in age, but older in the Lord, uh, to, to, to come alongside and to, and to give them that spiritual strength and, and nutrients to help them become strong in the Lord, to, to, to get rid of some of those, those cultural biases that they come to church with and to see the gospel for what it is and the liberty in Christ for what it is. It takes strong men to do that, to support them. Support, that's to scaffold them, to undergird them, to foundation them. In the faith. That's not just a Wednesday night Bible study. And that's just a, not just a fill-in-the-blank curriculum. That's life-on-life -life mentorship. That comes from men. Men, that's us. Then watch this lastly. You've listened very well. So we warn the unruly. We comfort the feeble-minded. We support the weak. And then I, lo I love this last one, verse number 14. The Bible says, be patient toward all men. And I want you to see specifically the, the preposition here. So be patient. You know what that means, right? Uh, we, we use the word patient today in a very limited sense. We use the word patient in our modern English to mean, uh, to refer to time. So patient means just, you know, wait, wait. But that's not what the word means here. The word patient here means to, to forbear, to actively put up with. So the Bible says, be patient now, don't miss this, toward all men. So in other words, you need, to, you need to emanate 
the overture that, that I'm in this with you. We're in the same church and we're different and you bug me sometimes, but we're in this thing together. We're brothers. I'm patient toward him. It's not that I try to avoid him. He does it his way, I do it mine. No, no, we're members of the same body. You know, I'm going to show my patience and my purpose towards you. See that? It's like, I, I, listen, we're in this together. That's what we do. Is, that's what we do in our families. We're families. We're allowed to argue. But if you attack my family, then we're going to all attack you. You know, we're, we're the gang, right? And that, the point in a local church is we need to be giving that, you know, ready to forgive, ready to love, ready to support, ready to put up with. And then watch the last verse, and we're out of time. I'll just read it. Verse number 15. So, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. In other words, when we have healthy churches, then the healthy church kind of becomes an entity that communicates to all men. It becomes, we have need of nothing. We're a, we're, we're a witness toward them that are without. Sometimes the reason our churches don't grow because people really don't want to be a part of that. Did it ever occur to you that sometimes people come into your assembly and they're like, they can't even love each other. Like, why would I want to be a part of that? When I come to a church, let me just give you a secret. I'll close with this. When I come to a church, I'm really not looking how you. I'm really not looking out for how you treat me. Because every church that's worth its weight treats the visitor nice. No, I want to know how you treat each other. Because if I join your church, that's who I'll be. I won't be the visitor. By this shall all men know that ye are my, and not attenders, disciples. If ye have love, one. Toward, yeah. Father, help us to just apply these principles. Thank you, Lord, for a simple passage. Forgive me for reiterating it to several men that have heard this lesson. But, Lord, um, I believe this is what you wanted for this hour. So help us, Lord, to apply it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.